At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 628th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Welcome, everybody. This is the Urban Farm Seed Chat with Bill McDormand. I'm Janice Norton. I'm coming from my farm, Two Piece in the Pod, and I'm also in North Phoenix, not Phoenix like Greg is. But I am excited to be the host tonight to welcome Bill McDormand, a regular, for those of you who are here on the Seed Chats, our expert on seeds, who's going to help us learn about brazen brassicas. And I love this, this paragraph we wrote about explaining what it is, and I hope most of you saw that. Sassy, unpretentious, and unapologetic, the brassica family covers some of the easiest and trickiest plants to grow and from which to save seeds. Kale, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, arugula, and broccoli are a few of the savory samples. Break through the mystery, the challenge, and the myths, and tune in tonight to learn how to grow and save seeds from this family of very interesting and diverse species. So Bill, are you ready? We're gonna talk seeds. I mean, wow, I found out when I was doing some research that there are over 30 wild species and hybrids in cultivation, and plus numerous more cultivars already out there. I mean, let's learn. Tell me what, where are we doing with these brassicas? Can you even explain what a brassica is? Well, brassica is a family name actually, and it's also brassicaceae is what we used to call it. Like, what is the family called these days? Because they've changed all the family names, but it is definitely a, a, the name of a genus of plants. And so it's a subcategory of, of a family, a mustard family, we'll call it. And it is a, must, a wild mustard. Almost all the things that we ascribe to this genus now, uh, to the brassicas, which includes broccoli and cauliflower and kale and cabbage and kohlrabi, and things like bok choy and Siberian kale and things like that, they're all, sprouts. they all came from wild plants. And in fact, they all came from just a couple of them. And there's that, been tremendous diversification just from humans saving seeds from things they liked that was different from what people say in the valley over from them like. And literally that was true in Northern Europe where many of the, the things that we really love like broccoli and cauliflower and cabbages were developed because all of those came out of the same exact species plant, actually Brassica oleraceae, wild mustard. And because somebody wanted green buds to, and to harvest those before they actually, the flowers opened up and what we call broccoli, they saved from and selected for that. And the people maybe the valley over did it for white ones and that became cauliflower. And somebody, they 
didn't like that at all, but they would rather eat the leaves of this plant. And they'd select it over a long period of time to create cabbages out of them. And somebody saw a cabbage go tall one time and have little cabbages on the sides and that became Brussels sprouts. So they saved the seeds from those. And I know this sounds overly simplistic, but it is. You know, as Joseph uh, Lockdown says, these were um, illiterate peoples, basically. They didn't have any idea about the species names and what they were doing when they first started this. They were growing for what they tasted good in their recipes. No idea about genetics. You know, this is before, not that long before Gregor Mendel, probably. And uh, so there's no idea of what genetics are. They just wanted, they knew what they wanted and developed it culturally and saved the seeds for it. And so... So all this is a, a long-winded way of saying that if you want to save seed from brassicas, you have to be kind of careful because if you want to save seed from broccoli and get broccoli, you have to be careful. If if you don't care, and I've got friends who don't care anymore, and so you know they've got kale growing in their yard and they have broccoli growing in their yard, and they're both brassica oleraceae, they could cross. And so, oh no, genetic mistake. We've broken the rules. <laughs> Oh my God, what do we do now? Well, gardening doesn't produce mistakes. No, you have broccoli to eat now, which is a cross between broccoli and kale, which I saw the other day, which was just this beautiful and wonderful little plant. And so- Okay, now I'm intrigued. I really want to try that. Right. Well, so, you know, I mean, what in a sense, what we're talking about is that if you don't pay attention and let things cross, that you may and most likely come up with new things. How exciting is that? This is what happened to get us these sorts of things, right? Right. Otherwise, we'd just have the one. Right. So whatever that first one was. I would say that, you know, if you're new to the brassicas, just and and I hope people will write in and or come on and ask questions because there are no stupid questions. And the most important answers are those that are specific to your garden. So don't feel embarrassed at all about asking about something that would work for you because that's really the most important gardening information there is. Now, I grew broccoli in my gardens a few years back, and I let some of my lettuce go to seeds, but my broccoli didn't go to seed. At least I didn't think it was. How do you know what you're doing to try and grow a particular brassica to seed? Because you found something you like, because obviously that's why you're going to try and keep the seed. You found something like, how do you let it go to seed for something like this? Well, did you get broccoli? I did. So you cut the heads of broccoli off? Yes. Well, so, uh, you know, modern hybrid varieties, uh, you may not be able to or uh, get very much seed off of a plant because they've really been selected to create one big tight head. Right. Yeah, because that's what we eat and that's what we want. And Um, that's what sells well in the stores. Older open pollinated varieties of broccoli actually produce a centralized head, but they're not, they haven't been totally tamed yet. And so there'll be little side heads of broccoli that come up. And Uh so you can let your broccoli create its inner head. And I'm talking about, you know, my favorite variety was called Desico, which came from Northern Europe. Desico with a D? D-E-C-C-I-C-O or I think is how. Anyway, it would produce side heads, smaller side heads, which is really better for gardeners, at least for me. Like I'm not, I don't want to plant you know, my broccoli and then have all the heads ready on the same day. Right. Because either I'm having a barbecue and inviting my friends over or I'm freezing or canning or doing something because it's going to be gone. But with these older varieties, they would produce a small central head and they're more variable. So they would come over a longer period of time anyway. 
cut that head and then side heads would start coming up. Right. And they would be smaller. Great. And you could cut those and eat them. So if you wanted broccoli, you could have it all season long. Anytime you wanted seed, you just let those go to seed. Those those heads are the seed heads. They're that they're the buds that contain the flowers that will grow up and open up. So all you have to do is just let it go. And you so to answer your question, you'll know when a brassica is going to seed because it'll have those yellow mustard flowers that start to come out all over the place. And it's oh. it's more difficult to keep that from happening than it is That's to try to think my... about making it happen. It always happens. That's the root of my problem then. We solved mine. I wasn't letting it go to head. I mean, right. to flower. I kept eating the dumb things. Right. Dumb things, the delicious things. Well, what else out there? How? What are some tricks so that we can find the traits that we like? How do we recognize traits that we like in a plant? We like, We recognize them. <laughs> See, this is where we're overthinking it. So, so, so we're we're bringing industrial, logical spreadsheet minds. That's mine. To our garden, all right. That's me. Yes. And we've got to learn not to do that. And I'm and and I used to say that playfully, but I'm starting to say it more seriously now. And the reason I'm saying that is that what we need is for you to figure out what you like that grows where you are and start saving those seeds, okay? Because we know now that every year you save those seeds, you're, it's changing, right? There's a billion variables and all the genes or whatever, there's this hugely intelligent being there that we're co-creating. You know, it's, it's gonna feed us and we're there for it. And so together we're gonna create something. And if we don't do that on large scale, all over this planet in a hurry, we're going to have an awful lot of hungry people. That's you know, what we see coming. And I think from the New York Times on down this week, as we start to see more and more evidence of climate change, that is disrupting our food supply lines. And so, and especially our seed supply lines. And so, so whenever you buy seeds from somewhere, you're bringing in something from way, you know, especially brassicas. They, many of the, uh, our favorite brassica varieties were developed in Northern Europe. So if you live in the Southwest, it was never even developed for our climate. Now they're being contract grown in China, right? So we have no idea where the seed's being grown. And then we're shipping it over here to the Southwest and expecting it to grow. And it's just going, oh no, what? 120? <laughs> yes. I can't do this, right? That's basically, yeah. I'm, you know, so what's happened, or if you live high in the mountains at 8,000 feet, it's saying the same thing. If you're outside a oxygen? really narrow band of weather and chemicals and whatever, almost all the industrial seeds that you buy just are going to be outside of that range. Now, that's what we have to start with. So we're going to have to start with it. So what I recommend is everybody getting seeds from wherever they can get them with whatever they like about them, whatever story or whatever, whether it's a color catalog, whatever, just get as many different things as you can grow them out in your yard and start that process of seeing what will work or not. Because even, you know, especially if you're using the old land races or heirlooms like we do in the Great American Seed Up, so there's enough diversity left in those plants that some of them will make it. A very small number probably, maybe the first year, especially if it's 120 in the brassicas, but some will start to make it. So save those seeds and replant them and you'll have way more success the second year. And as Joseph Lockdown says, uh, he's starting to recognize that the third year is when it really starts to pay off. 
So we have like a three-year window that we need everyone to go through in saving so their brassicas. So what you're suggesting, very clearly here, I'm going to say it again because I thought it was an important point, is that we go out, we get these seeds from wherever we can. What's it? plug for Great American Seed Up, of course, right. but get these seeds from wherever we can, plant them, grow them, let them get some seeds, save those seeds, plant those, grow those, get some seeds, plant those, grow those, get some seeds. Right. So that's what you're saying is this repetition, right. growing, proceed, growing, proceed, growing, right. proceed. Okay. And your, your question was about what characteristics do we select for? It survives. It looks great. It comes up and we go, whoa, look at that plant. And we like to eat it. Otherwise, there's yeah. no reason to save it. And that's really all you have to focus on to be a great breeder. It survives and we like to eat it. That's two it. most important questions, right. two most important traits. Right. So if you're going to bring your spreadsheet mind, it only has two boxes on it. All right. <laughs> you can leave your spreadsheet home. You don't have to, you know, and go out every day and watch it. That can teach you a lot about it also in ways that you don't, that you can't maybe rationalize at first. Your left lobe won't even quite understand, but you'll start to develop an intuition about what's right. working and what isn't. And almost every great plant breeder I know, whether it's like Dr. Uh, Carol Depe, who taught genetics at Harvard for 25 years, to Joseph Lofthouse, who's like one of the great plant breeders of our time now, with his book called Landry's um, Gardening, they, they all come around to the same place and say, the more I let go of my rational mind and walk through my garden and start paying attention intuitively, the better it gets. Okay. So that's, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not going woo woo here. I just maybe one woo. Right. <laughs> and I'm doing that because I've seen it get better results. And again, I'm putting us within the context of where we live on this planet right now. And we are seeing huge supply line disruption, if not inflation for food price, all these things are coming about. And so not too long ago, we all used to grow our own food. 90% of the fresh vegetables in Russia are still grown in gardens, all right? In home gardens. That's how it used to be in the United States. Now, 96% of all the food consumed in Arizona is shipped in from somewhere else. And 95 or 6% of everything produced in Arizona agriculturally is shipped out, yeah, you know? So we're, we're, we got to come through that transition. And to do that rationally, let's start through, cast a wide genetic net get as many different kinds of things, broccolis or whatever, and start growing them and see which ones you like and which ones work. Those numbers that you were saying there, the, the importance of, of recognizing how much agriculture is shipped into your state. Arizona is pretty significant. We do have these numbers, but we, but we know them because we live in Arizona. Other states have the same situation because our food system is a system of transport across the nation and even other countries. There's no yeah. system that's totally locally generated with, or even mostly locally generated with their own food. And we cannot rely on that. We have to secure our own resilience by improving the food that's grown locally and improving the seeds that are sharing the seeds that are grown locally. I am a huge proponent for that. I am so glad to be part of what we do to make sure we can get that message out. That's so right. I, I just- So there was a, a, a huge report released this week. I think I read about it in the New York Times. Somebody did a, a really detailed survey of the top 80 foods that are sold in the supermarket. 
the foods we buy, they were breakfast cereals, they were, you know, yogurt, you know, the things that we buy in the grocery right. store today, they weren't making a judgment over whether it was good food or processed or whether they were just, just saying the, the top. And it, they were shocked that over, I, I'm trying, I'm pulling figures from, and it may not be exact, but it seemed like 80% of those foods now are controlled by three or fewer multinational corporations. 80% of, in each category, we've monopolized and centralized this stuff so much, it's just unbelievably scary. All right, so if we take that out a little bit and we think that there are just three or four major controllers of our food system, and we've seen what happens out there in our economies, if something happens negatively to one strong provider of anything that we rely on, the system goes down. And we need to make sure that we are prepared for that. I mean, you talk about but utilities, you talk about banking, you talk about lumber, you talk about anything. You start looking at if, the, if we are reliant on just certain things, we are weak. We are not strong in that. For instance, right now, one of the major threats that is happening out there is our internet and our uh, security of these major corporations and the the attacks that are happening on their infrastructure. If something like that happens and shuts down the, the shipping of our food, what do we do? Well, it doesn't even take that, we learned, right? All it takes right. is for a ship to get a little bit cattywampus in the Suez Canal. And, and the world freeze. You know, 80% of the world stuff stopped, you know? I mean, so yeah. anyway, you know, we could go on and on. A couple of things. One is that I, the statistics I quoted for Arizona agriculture are available for almost every area of the country. So if yes. you want data, if you want to go in and argue with your county extension agents or with your state legislature, because this is the places where we could start to make policy changes, little ones that mm -hmm. would make a tremendous change. Ken Meters in the Crossroads Resource Center, and I just put the, uh, the link in the chat, has done surveys of the agriculture dollars. How many dollars in, how many dollars out? Who's growing what, where's it being grown and what's going on? And so, you know, when they did Arizona, it's worse than the fact that we ship in 96% of our food. We are paying $300 million a year. That's how much Arizona agriculture loses every year and has for a number of years. And to do that, it uses about half the state's water and it's poisoning us and leaving our soil dead. And to do that, then it loses about $300 million. I'm just measuring the profits in minus the costs of growing that food, you know, all the pesticides, herbicides, the seeds they have to buy now, and then what they're getting for commodity food prices. And so, you know, basically agriculture in most areas of the country for most crops is just a way for farmers to borrow money while their land appreciates until they can sell it to a development. That's really all Arizona agriculture is, is a place to park money, get tax write-offs and lose money until it's time for the land to be worth more. And so now, so you think about then the download line of what all that process that the system does. We've got hungry people, we've got diabetes, we got, you know, it's a, and, we're, and we're losing money to do all that. And so all of that can stop if you start growing some in your own yard. Just pick one thing. Pick something you love. 
you know, find, get a story, get it from your grandmother to see it, get them from wherever you want, but just get started and grow and save some of your own seeds. And you could be doing the most important thing. I've always said that, and I still believe it. Yes. Okay, I want to say that link for Ken Meter was www.crcworks.org. I'm verbalizing it because this is going to be a podcast soon. So again, that's www.crc, Crossroads Resource Center, works.org, crc.org. Okay. So you Not can download down. PDFs of almost all the areas that he's done. They're right. a nonprofit and they provide this information. If you don't find what you need, or like my friends where I grew up in Ketchum, Idaho, wanted a real specific, they hired Ken and his people came out and did the analysis of their area. And then you've got data. You go in and you show them, look, you've got zoning laws supporting this, or you're giving subsidies to this, you know, tax money, my tax money. And it's not working. Here are the numbers. Right. We've got to start right. a conversation about doing this differently. And so. Yeah. Well, I'm going to bring you back to the brassicas. Okay. So when you grow this broccoli out and you've got the flower, how do you collect those seeds? Well, it's like every other mustard plant. Which is? You wait until it produces long, skinny seed pods. And the seeds are all lined up. And so it's like a pea pod only on, you know, been stretched out. And the seeds are tiny and round and either run the gamut from kind of a reddish color to a black. And they'll be in there. And so what I do is wait until they start to pop open. That's called dehisting. So you'll see this long, skinny, series of long, skinny things. And maybe I can find a picture for the people that are on that could see it. But anyway, when you see some of them start to pop, what happens is the ones at the top of the flower or the center of it will start to dry out first. And you know, they'll start to pop open. You'll actually, some of the seeds will hang on. You'll see them still in the pod as it starts to open up like this. And so once those start, then you could like even cut off the whole top of the plant or pull the whole plant and the rest of them will mature and then fall in a bag for you. Otherwise you have to go out every day and maybe shake the top of it and get a few seeds every day. That would be one thing if you're in your garden every day, but it's pretty simple. And how many broccoli seeds do you need? I mean, you know, you can, you can get tens of thousands off of one plant. So if a few fall on the ground and that's actually my strategy now, I always let them go because then they're volunteers. They always pick the right, right time to come up and they start coming up. And that's really the easiest way to save seeds is to let some of them fall in the ground and start themselves. And this method of collecting is the same for all the brassicas? Yes. Yeah. You know, in the whole big family, the mustard family is divided actually botanically into seed pods that are round and seed pods that are long and skinny. And almost really? all the foods that we eat that we call brassicas have long, skinny ones. But never say never. And somebody out there might be, what did you say? There are 31 wild you know, right. species of brassica that are being in cultivation somewhere. So it may end up being a round pot, like a round mustard pot. But either way, they act the same. They they mature and they start to open and then the seeds will fall out and you can you can get them. Pretty simple. I like that. That's pretty cool. And it's easy it's to clean them then. If you just put them on a cookie sheet and tip up one end end of the cookie sheet, they're round. They all all the seeds roll down and all the chaff or whatever else is left just stays on the oh, shoot. that is so cool. I'm maybe, sure you've talked about that before, and I've missed that. Yeah, maybe get a, a playing card or something to scoop the 
the chaff back up to the top of the thing, but they'll just all roll down to the bottom and be clean too. It's pretty easy to do. Okay, folks, you got it here. The most easiest way of sorting <laughs> your seeds from your chaff ever. And and just remember, it's a home gardener. Playing card. Yeah, you don't even need to uh, clean it. Right? <laughs> who cares? You're not putting because it in a pack package or if you are who cares if there's a little chaff you know if you're busy i don't have time for this i'm a modern creature right well we're you know the then don't clean organic, them the chaff becomes organic material in the garden in the future right. the seeds don't care so. and if you plant them with a little chaff great <laughs> that's so cool all right i really i appreciate that because being as busy as I am and being, um, I don't really want to invest in a lot of machines and supplies to do my seed saving. I like that simple version because that's just, it makes so much more sense for me. Let's go for some questions. You ready? Yeah. Hoban says, when I grew broccoli in my new organic soil, the broccoli didn't do well. I was told my soil was too hot, but if I grow it in depleted soil, will I get better broccoli? Well, it's so it, this is a function actually of where it came from, you know, the so soil. if you have a, a modern variety of broccoli that was developed for a certain level of nutrition and, you know, you're you're changing that by bringing it to your garden, then and your gardens, you know, more organic material or whatever, it just doesn't work as well, but some of it might. So and save seeds from it. It's going through that. What I would say is don't give up after a year, I would still grow it in the, your soil because that's your soil. It's where you are, it's your weather, it's all your stuff. So save seed no matter what, if you can, even if it's a, a little skinny plant that barely goes to seed, great, save those seeds and plant them again and see how it does the second year. So that's one thing to do. And and, and this, you know, again, Joseph Blocktail says this, and I said this at a meeting in California once where they announced they were going to do a, that it was Jerry Brown was governor and they were going to release a billion dollars in California. This was a number of years ago to improve California's soil for agriculture. You know, they're waking up to how we've depleted the soil. We have to learn to take care of them and no till and there's education. It's all really a great idea. But I raised my hand and said, you know, if you released a billion dollars to gardeners all over in California, and let them grow and save their own seeds in poor soils, you could actually adapt plants to grow in the poor soil that you've created faster than you could build that soil up to be good. I mean, it's all good and we need them both, but what I'm trying to focus on is the plants are malleable. They're intelligent. Right. They change from year to year. And that's the thing that you have to, to remember about them. So basically the answer to your question is, yeah, you know, try it in all different kinds of soils if that's what you have. Otherwise, save seeds from the soil that you have and let the plants adapt. And you can do and that you can would do be both. the first year. Right. And that and that what does survive would be the first year and would be a good broccoli for the next year in that same soil. Now, well, do you, also, you know, I want to I want to address that part, the comment he said right. where his soil was too hot. And that could be that your soil may not have been finished composting. And that could definitely have an impact on your seeds. So it may be organic, but if it's not done composting, you need to let that help, let that finish. They have too much nitrogen in it. Right. But you know, throughout a year, those kinds of things tend to work themselves out. I mean, unless yes. you're going out there every day and dumping miracle Grow on it, which is like giving crack cocaine to somebody. You know? <laughs> then 
you know, there's no way to fix that. So <laughs> sorry, I should I shouldn't laugh, but that's such a great analogy. It is the analogy. That is almost exactly what you're doing. Right. Oh, I had a tomato okay. plant that was 10 feet tall that was totally addicted to miracle Grow, And I stopped uh. eating it for a couple of weeks and the whole thing just collapsed. It was like, oh, I need my stuff. You know, there was no resilience in it at your all. Poor, your, your poor uh, tomato plants jonesing out there in front of you. Okay, Lynette asks, how do I collect the seeds for my leafy kale? They are small, long, skinny pods now. Well, let them dry. And when you start to see the pods open up and you're starting to actually lose some of the seeds, this is just my rule of thumb, then you can just pull those pots off and put them in a dry bag and let them finish drying. If you've got room, you know, you could pull part, you could cut off part of the plant, pull the whole plant. We used to do that in, when winter would come in Idaho and the snow would come. So we'd pull the whole plants and turn them upside down and just let them dry out. And all that energy in the plant finishes going into the green pots and maturing the seeds before they dry out. Right. All right, Carrie is a frequent participant in our classes. She asks, are all brassicas, do all brassicas cross-pollinate? She says she might be okay with that, but should she separate them for her first year? I just made a decision in my own garden, and this is just where, you know, after 45 years of doing this, I'm just getting started. I'm actually more humble. You know, my wife, <laughs> Bill, just said the other day, she says, God, there's just so much we don't know you know and you you know you're around it long enough you realize how how true that is you know it's right there's a there's a lot to do but i've just decided i'm not going to separate anything anymore because what i've learned is that the characteristics the genetic traits the alleles if you want to get right down into what's going on that are in the all the brassicas that you bring into your property are way more intelligent at adapting to your place than you'll ever be able to. And as long as you taste them and eat them and only save the seeds from the ones you really want to eat, it really doesn't matter what it is or even where it came from. There's this magical adaptation mix starting to happen. And again, Joseph Bobdale says he's seen miracle changes within three years of letting everything cross and starting to save, plant that. And by the third year, you start to get things. You know, whether you want purple leaf kale or broccoli or cabbage sprouts, or I mean, there's all sorts of things that come out, could come out of it. But my guess is that you'll recognize some of the stuff into the categories that we're used to, whether it's a cabbage or whatever, and you'll like some of them and they'll work for you. And the more you grow and save those seeds year to year, the better they'll work for you. They'll start to come home and adapt themselves to your yard. And I have found the volunteers, the things that pop up that I didn't plant by seed, the ones that plant themselves, they grow so much better on their own time schedule than anything I try to do. I gave that up in my gardening, definitely. Well, they're taking, you know, if you want to study, we've got, if you go to RockyMountainSeeds.org and our seed socials, We've got a seed social with Dr. Bradley Thomason, who has a PhD, just got his PhD in plant genetics and breeding. He did his work in rice, but he explains pretty clearly epigenetics and why this happens in one year in your garden, why these changes start to happen. And it's so that's the latest rage in genetics is epigenetics, which means beyond genetics. 
is that we're learning that, that plants can actually react in real time to heat, to disease, to flood, to whatever that are in our yard. And what they do is they roll up their DNA. And when they do that, they can either keep some locations on it from expressing, some of the genes from expressing. And the, by that, I mean whether or not it's going to make a protein or not and grow in a certain way or do certain things, or it can unroll its DNA and allow new genes, the genes that it has that's always been in its, in its bag, so to speak, to express themselves. And so it's doing this in ways that we can't even count in your yard every year. And what epigenetics has taught us in the last 20 years, and they've documented, is that a plant can pass that on to its immediate offspring, whether it's rolled up or not. So if you have 130 degrees surviving broccoli in Phoenix, right? It's just getting beaten down by the sun. It's making all sorts of changes. You save those seeds and plant them. That broccoli the next year is going, okay, here it comes. We're, we, we're all set up and ready for that. It has post-traumatic <laughs> stress, basically. And it's passing right. that. And we're learning that about humans, right? We're learning right. that grandchildren can have the stress that their grandparents went through in concentration camps or in Lebanon or wherever, you know, that we pass down post-traumatic stress. Well, plants do the same thing. We're just waking up to all these new understandings. And that's why it's really important for us to get back on it because we're learning this at just the right time. We know that 90% of the food in the United States could be grown within 100 miles of where everybody lives. We got 50% of the food being grown in some areas of the world now, or it's being grown in urban areas, in small gardens. As I said, 90% of the fresh vegetables in Russia, in all of Russia, are grown in backyard gardens in their dutches. So we don't have to be hungry. We don't have to depend on anybody. We can get all the vitamins and minerals, superfoods that we need. We just have to find the seeds that are left, start mixing them up as much as we can. Let those alleles, the more you mix the more you don't pay attention to keeping things separate or breeding things true, the more you let everything mix, the quicker you find out what you want to eat that'll grow in your garden. Does that make sense? It's so simple. Yeah. yeah. And, and the important thing is for those of us who are able to grow to seed, to start sharing those with your neighbors there you go. and spreading that wealth sharing that wealth and enriching your neighborhood because that and teach them hey i saved this from seed it was so easy to do and these are already adapted to our area imagine walking moving to a city where you walk in where they've been doing this for a hundred years they've got a vibrant seed library and seed exchanges and neighborhoods and everybody's sharing magical it would make it, or you move to Phoenix, right? <laughs> the least sustainable city in the world, you know? I mean, there's some magical things happening in Phoenix, you know, but they're small compared to the, you know, the population of 5 million people or whatever. Right. So, so but that's the challenge we have. And that's why, you know, if I get excited or seem like I'm proselytizing about it, I am <laughs> because I think we need to do this, you know? Yeah. You know, you you are proselytizing on some ways of this, but you've made so much sense that that message is getting out there and more and more people are sharing it, myself included. So, you know, just to summarize before you go on to this question is that, you know, we've got broccoli and kale and cabbages and kohlrabi and Brussels sprouts and all these things. So I'm mixing them all. 
That's what I'm doing. I'm going to get a mix of, I'm, and this is what I'm trying to do. That's my, if, you, if you're interested in helping on this project, I think every region of the country should pool all their seed, take a little bit. So what I'm going to do is try to find a way that we can set up a system so that you can send me, everybody could send us a small amount of every kind of broccoli, every kind of brassica you have. And we'll put, put all of that in a big bucket with all of them. And we'll send you back the same amount of seeds that you sent us, but you'll have the mother load of diversity, right? Uh -huh. have, you, we have no idea where it came from, but we've got more chances, more dice to throw than ever. And we all plant that everywhere we are and start saving and selecting from where we are. Within three to five years, we can start to change seed saving and adaptability all over this country by doing projects like that. We need and to do all the outcrossing crops with corn and melons and uh, cucumbers and the brassicas and carrots. All those things will work really well doing this and spinach. And so find as many different things as you can, you know? Yeah. All right. And so if you are going to send this stuff in, send it into Bill. Don't send it to Greg. Yeah, well, and it'll be the Rocky Mountain <laughs> Seed Lines and I'll announce it. I'm not, you know, this was something I've been thinking on about in the last few days. And it comes out of an idea. Do you realize this is what the corn farmers in Northern Mexico have been doing for, we don't know how far this goes back, could be thousands of years. But if you have a corn crop and you isolate it long enough, and uh, there, I met a farmer in Idaho who was down on the Snake River in the Hell's Canyon, totally isolated. And about every 10 years, his corn would start to get shorter. He was saving his own seeds from the cobs that were better, and he was really good about that. But he noticed after about 10 years that inbred depression was setting in, is what a geneticist would say. It just wasn't as vibrant, wasn't as tall, didn't get the yield. So he learned to bring in pollen from something else, new diversity, bring it in. And it, and it would mess up his, you know, it wasn't all tall orange cobs the way he liked it, but he would he would keep selecting those and he would get about 10 more years. And then he, this, was a, this guy was in his 80s and he had been doing this and for decades, okay? Well, it, they noticed this in Northern Mexico thousands of years ago. So there was a place, it's a mythical place because I, the person who told me this story who's been there wouldn't tell me where it was, but there is a mother cornfield. So if you're a, a farmer in Northern Mexico and your corn starts to show inbred depression because it doesn't have enough diversity, you can grab a bag of your seed and take it to this mother cornfield and drop it off. And they will mix it with all the other corns of the whole huge area and with Teosintle, the wild mother corn, and create all sorts of new diversity and then give you back the same amount of seed. And you bring that up and put that in with your other corn in your field and you bring your, the, bring the, you know, how vibrant and vital your variety is back. And that's what we need to do with everything. All the outcrossing crop, that's, it's just like, we're not, this isn't a new idea. This is what we're gonna need to survive. This is an excellent idea. I mean, an excellent representation of when we are closed-minded, we are losing so much oh, yeah. potential growth. And when we open our minds up, that's where all these beautiful thoughts start coming in. All these beautiful pollination and cross. Yeah. Awesome. And it takes a whole village. It takes a community. One it person does. isn't going to be able to, to, to do this. And why? You know, it's just so much easier to make this a community activity. The yes. only downside to this is that commercial industrial seed companies won't be needed anymore. Oops. The industrial ones. Yeah, oops. 
yeah. family ones will be there. Yeah, the small right. family ones, there'll always be a role for those. I, I really believe that. There's just too much fun. <laughs> <laughs> I have to agree. I do have a lot of fun doing what we do with the Great American CDEP. All right, let's try to walk out some more of these so we, we don't leave too many people hanging here. Leisha says, I grow broccoli, Waltham broccoli heirloom, plus various other heirloom brassicas. If they cross-pollinate and I get a new variety, is that a hybrid? And will the seeds from that not be consistent? Well, when we use the word hybrid now means intentional cross between two inbred parents so that you can okay. predict what the, the offspring is going to be like. You know where all the dominant traits are and where all the recessive traits are. So when those get cross-pollinated, you can predict whether it's going to be a dominant or recessive at each place. I'm, that's a definition of a modern hybrid. So in a looser, more biological sense, yeah, that's, you know, it's a cross. That's what happens. Now, will it be a stable cross? We, we don't know. So that's why you have to plant that and save the seeds again from whatever you're looking for. And that process doesn't take very long to stabilize, so to speak, for a home gardener within three to four years, you usually have a working crop, something you recognize, something most of which works for you. If you go eight years, you can usually get it so you could even sell it then. Wow. And I'm doing huge generalizations there, but that <laughs> kind of gives you a roadmap. You, you know, have so, to in this yeah. So all, all that you need to know about that stuff is in basic seed saving. A little book I wrote in 1992, I think, Love that, that cost five bucks. And you can get it on the RockyMountainSeeds.org website. Okay. Shirley says that she's got Siberian kale seeds and loves that type of kale, but could not find that that was seeds in any seed catalog. So this year, one branch of a kale plant went to seed, but the pods are very small and the seeds are very, very tiny. Can you go ahead and harvest the branch of seed when the bottom seeds are still green and the tops are dry and brown? Well, that, that's what I do. I mean, if it was a really special plant, for me and it was disappearing. In other words, I couldn't get any more seeds. And I'm, you know, I would go out every day and pick off the dry pots or the ones that are just, you learn to recognize you, when they're just about ready to open up. You want to let them mature as long as they can. Wet, you know, you don't want them green, but you don't want them to open up and spill and be gone. So, you know, you have to kind of play that game. If you can't, if you're going to work or you're going away for a week or whatever, then do what you said, exactly. Let some of the top ones go dry. The bottom ones will be green. Pop off that whole branch and put that in a paper bag in a cool, dark, dry place and let it finish. And let it finish. Awesome. All right. I, for those of you who have questions in here that are a little bit off of brassicas or off of seeds, I'm trying to take those questions first. So I'm not, I'm, I'm going to make sure I get those through there. Christina asks, will they cross with weeds? We have a lot of spring mustard weeds and would, and would, do we know of any brassica crosses with mustard weeds that worked out really well? Well, I hope so. I mean, there are people here locally that, I've had a couple of people tell me they think that our arugula has crossed with a wild weed. And oh, wow. so they're starting to get arugula with really yellow flowers. Arugula usually has white flowers. So that's really about the only example of, of you know, a mustard family plant crossing with local weeds. Most of what we call the brassicas, which are the brassica oleraceae, which is the cabbage, kale, cauliflower, right. broccoli. There are no brassica oleraceae weeds. There's no weeds in that species that I know of. 
growing, especially in the West. So, you, so no, you wouldn't have to worry about that. And that's the definition of a species, is that it won't cross-pollinate with Brassica rapa or Brassica uh, napus or one of the other, you know, myriad other Brassica species. And so, but never say never. And they do cross sometimes. And if you if you ever have one. And magic happens. You know, you magic. Know, because what you're finding is that that weed is perfectly adapted, maybe for thousands of years to your local environment. And it's bringing that into your food crop. And will it be edible? May not be because lots of the weeds aren't edible because they still have bitters. Well, those bitters keep all the pests away. Right. But there could be some strange combination in between where you have your aha moment. You go, that is actually better for me. I don't have to water it. It's a weed. I don't have, there's no insects that'll get on it because it's a weed. And yet I can still grow it and eat it. I mean, that would be the holy grail for me. So we're going to come back to that. But right. so one one point I saw in there is when we're planting our vegetables, we need to make a record of the name of the vegetable and the Latin name, as especially if we're going to start being paying attention for cross pollination and just to be able to be more aware of what we're doing. If we can start recognizing those Latin names. Latin, always learn the Latin if you can. You're going to be around if the plant where and why, you know, people go, oh, you're stuffy Latin. You know, those people, you know, that speak Latin. Latin is just a language to understand plants that's worldwide. So wherever yeah. you go in the world, wherever you meet a garden, and now we're getting smaller, we've got Google Translate on our phones, you know, whatever it is. I mean, you can talk to people about what you're doing. So that's the big advantage is that you can translate your knowledge wherever you go. And people know exactly what you're talking about. Common names for things don't go very far. Mustard and kale, right. especially. And the common names are sometimes the same common name is used and it's two totally different plants. Yeah. That's always tr tricky. Teresa asked a question very early tonight. She said that she tried to grow bikini from seed three times as her neighbor did as well. And the seedlings got infested with tiny black bugs. Having got, grown bikini for years, this is the first time that the neighbor has had this problem. What do you suggest? So what was the plant? Rapini. Rapini. You know, there's a couple of different ways to look at that. So what John Navasio would do is uh, go on a rapini hunt for varieties. Uh, how many different varieties of uh, rapini are there? I, I from no different areas. Find the whole history of the plant, where it came from, who grew it first. Is that a, a valley in Italy? I, You know, I don't know the history of it. And then find all the different kinds from all the different sources of right to seed savers exchange, uh, look through catalogs and get as many different kinds as you can and mix them all up and plant a huge amount of it. If you really want to do this, that's what you should do. Plant a long 100 foot roll, get your neighbors to do it. Since you're all grown, all, they're all mixed up anyway. Get everybody you know in your area to grow it and let them and bring on the bugs. Yeah. Say, come on, you guys and lose 99% of it. Let it all go. And that one plant or two plants, or three plants that they leave alone, bingo. Those are the ones you oh. save your seed from. That's how we've done this all through. And you may never find one. It may be in futility, and nature's like that. And if that's the case, what I would do is still plant rapini around the outside of my garden so all the bugs would go out there <laughs> and leave everything <laughs> else that I'm growing alone. You know, use it as a strategy then, yeah. 
There you go. And also, you know, by allowing your, your natural ecosystem to take place, the good bugs, the beneficial bugs will come in to take care of the, the pest bugs. Because in reality, out of all the bugs that are out there, most of them are beneficial and only a few of them right. aren't. There, you know, if it's a herbs, aromatic herbs, you know, planted in and around. Sometimes you can hide crops like that. So put a row of lavender on one side and mint on the other or thyme and plant it in between. And sometimes the bugs, they just, there's all sorts of strategies and tricks. And so, but you've got to be dedicated. You know, lots of times home gardeners do this and they, they want to grow it, but they're not passionate enough to follow through with the kinds of things that I'm suggesting to be able to do it. But all of these would be great projects. That sounds like a fun project. Let us know how that goes. Yeah, please. Carrie says, thank you, Bill. This is making so much more sense now. I'm trying to stick with the broccoli questions here. Fawn says, I bought organic sprouting broccoli and planted some in the garden. Will this grow poor heads if bred for seed collection rather than to grow for vegetables? The broccoli sprout seed business is relatively new. Okay, so, I mean, if you think about how much seed you would need to supply people for sprouts versus to grow broccoli. It's a magnitude larger. So, yeah. so the broccoli, I just know the people that grow broccoli seed in the United States, some of the larger open pollinated broccoli. I even know the hybrid broccoli people. And there's only so much. I mean, there's so much acreage and so many, you know, home garden use of broccoli. So nobody would ever grow, say, um, 10,000 tons more for a new market unless there was a market for it. And I can tell you what they did. They took all the throwaway broccoli seed, all the stuff that didn't matter commercially or had been discontinued or whatever. And that's what they use to, you know, for broccoli sprouting seed to, to lay a base. And so I've, nobody I know of has actually selected for and bred for broccoli seed for sprouting. So you don't know what you're getting. It's a big, it's like Mr. Toad's wild ride. If you're getting broccoli seed for sprouting and, and trying to grow broccoli. Well, that might be that. In fact, that's a really great idea. I think I'll do that <laughs> just to see <laughs> what's going on because you may have something that, you, again, the alleles, the, the adaptations that you may need for your star broccoli may be in there. And if you let them all cross and you select for a few years, you may end up with a, a home run out of that whole thing. You know, it may not wow. be a bad place to start. I don't know. Wow, right. Okay, so we've got four things left. Two questions are very similar. Andrea and Hoban are both asking about growing seeds for the tropics. Andrea says, do we have any insights for growing seeds in the tropics? And Hoban says, can we grow plants that we've come to believe that will only grow in tropical areas like bananas and coffee? Oh, tricky, trying to grow those outside of the tropics. Yeah, that's I not a good idea. And it's just as difficult to grow what we call the vernal crops in tropical areas for seed. So I was in, uh, Bella and I got to go to the Philippines. And what we learned right away is that people, their carrots, their celery, you know, lots of times even their broccoli and or cabbages especially weren't going to seed. And the well, reason you know, is they, those are Northern European, Northern latitude crops. That's where they were all developed originally. And they need a cold period before they go, before, that the little trigger comes on and the plants actually go to seed. So, you know, I had one gentleman roll, he had a celery plant he'd been trying to, to grow and get seeds off of because he wanted celery seed. 
for years. And I said, oh, just trim it back and roll it into that walking. He was in a place where they had a walking cooler where they would store vegetables right. before this. I said, just roll it into your walking cooler for about six <laughs> weeks and then, and then roll it back out. Chill. And sure enough, bang, big flowers. <laughs> You know, so that would be the, the number one thing that you would have to learn to pay attention to is, is how to vernalize. And carrots are easy. You can put them in sand, put them in a refrigerator or whatever. And then you can, then they'll, they'll pop and they'll go to seed. But otherwise, they, they may just sit around for years and not. Well, all right. We're really close to the end here. We just got a couple of questions left. Okay. Andrew says, you say that these things are happening at just the right time. Do you think from your experience that solutions will always appear when we need them if we remain open to them and observe nature? <laughs> That's called hope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I totally yeah. believe that. <laughs> right. All right. Peggy asks about land-raised gardening. Peggy, we, that is, what is land-raised gardening, she asks? Land-raised gardening was a seed company started by Joseph Lofthouse. And now all his seeds... And his combinations of things, the grexes is a word that's being used these days that he's working on, are, are available through the Experimental Farm Network. And you can just Google that up. Those are good friends of him. Last and, question. And just, and I should, I wish I had the link and maybe somebody can find it on Amazon is um, you can find uh, Joseph's book has just been released. It's called Land Race Gardening which will give you a way more in-depth uh, look at what I've been talking about all evening by somebody who really is, is becoming well-known throughout the world for doing this. Right. And on Great American Seed Up, we just had an article about him on their blog at the Great American Seed Up. Nice article there. All right. Last question. And then we're wrapping it up. Let's see if we get this done in time. Uh, Chike asks, if a broccoli got infested with aphids, even in the seed pods, should I get the seeds from it? Or would the plants from the seeds be more likely to get infested with aphids? Or is it better to save seeds from healthier ones? Well, I think it's what you said in the end is always true. It's better to save seeds from ones that are healthy. We don't have enough information to know if the seeds will be good enough. They could be fine. But what we do know is that we could be selecting for aphid resistance if we save seeds from the plants that don't have aphids, especially if they're all around. You know, right. you can move populations of crops in a direction away from those sorts of problems, generally. And that's the kind of, I know it sounds slower. It's not like spraying it with Roundup or whatever we've learned to do, but it's really the real work. It's, you know, it, it's a responsibility. And I'll just end with this, is that for 10,000, 11,000 years, human beings have been doing this and creating out of wild mustard all of what we call the broccoli, so the brassicas, right? Those are gifts to us. And for us not to go on and do that work and adapt those crops to where we live is just a lack of responsibility. That's how I feel. We, we have a responsibility to learn the stories and save the seeds and pass both of those on freely and openly. Well, Bill, thank you so much. We've had some really great questions addressed here tonight. We've had some, a lot of, positive responses. I'm going to try and grab some of those because we got some good answers in there. Peggy threw in a link on the Amazon. We're going to try and make sure that that Amazon for land raised gardening gets thrown in for um, our, our podcast notes. And um, oh, this was fun. I'm so glad. 
so next time Greg goes on vacation, I'll be doing it again. <laughs> you, you are a gracious and wonderful host. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. I always learn stuff, even when we're just sitting around cleaning up seeds after a great American seed up. I'm learning from you, so I appreciate it. Well, so we're much. all learning. That's the, yeah, to keep an open mind. You said that earlier, and that's really the most important thing. So, good night, everybody. Right. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.